Hello, and welcome to World Canvas from International Programs at the University of Iowa. I'm Joan Kerr, and we're coming to you from Film Scene in Iowa City. Thank you for joining us here this afternoon. Our guests tonight are from the field of public health, and in our first segment, we'll be talking with Rebecca Arnold, the 2015 recipient of the University of Iowa's International Impact Award. Before we start tonight's conversation, though, I'd like to invite you to come to these live shows and enjoy them as they're happening, or else catch them later on UITV, YouTube, iTunes, or the International Programs website. And to learn more about Film Scene, the location where we shoot this program, go to icfilmscene.org. Rebecca Arnold is a senior program officer at Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, the Center for Communication Programs. She's a UI Masters of Public Health graduate and this year's recipient of the International Impact Award. This is the sixth year of the award, which is given to exceptional individuals who've made sustained and deep contributions internationally or in the United States to promote global understanding. In fact, we're fortunate tonight to have the first recipients of this award here in the audience with us, Mary Jo and Dick Stanley. So thank you for coming this evening. Um, Rebecca, first, congratulations on your award. Thank you, Joan. We, we were so happy to see the nomination come in from your colleague, uh, Edith Parker, and uh, from Dean Curry. Mm -hmm. And um, it was a very easy decision, I think, for our committee to choose you for this award. Um, so. Take us back a little bit. You grew up here in the Midwest, Rock mm -hmm. Island, I think. Rock Island, Island, Illinois, born and right. raised. So you're a girl from the Midwest, and now you're in Bangladesh. How did that all happen? I, I, I wish I knew. Um, <laughs> and, and it certainly wasn't uh, intentional. You know, I didn't grow up dreaming of living in Bangladesh or, or living overseas or, or working in public health. Um, things unfolded in such a way that uh, I, I discovered that my passion was global public health, but it, that happened quite by accident. Mm -hmm. um, in my, in my, so right after undergraduate, I worked in the publishing industry in, in Chicago for, for, for five years. Um, and then I decided I needed something more, I needed to add some value to the world. Uh, so I joined the Peace Corps, and they sent me to Madagascar, and they assigned me to be a community health educator. I didn't know such a thing existed, uh, but I was fortunate. I, I, I loved it. Um, they, it's, it's true what they say about toughest job you'll ever love, but it's, it was a fabulous experience, and I, I discovered my passion. So when I went there, I thought it would be something fun to do for a while, but it turned into a whole new career path for me, and, and here I am. So I, since then, uh, you know, just follow the opportunities as they, yeah. as they arise. Yeah. yeah. So on that first assignment in the Peace Corps, mm -hmm. what, what, were you, what were you told you would be doing? Or how did you integrate yourself into the community so you could have those deeper conversations? Right. Well, uh, I mean, the first thing you have to do is learn how to speak the language. Mm -hmm. Because I think in my town, there was one English speaker and, and maybe, maybe 10 who could put together some French. But that was it. So, so you have to, to spend time learning the local language, um, which means at the beginning, you feel like you're not doing very much, but that's your job, is, is to learn the language and, and become part of the community and, and earn the trust of the community. Uh, and once you do that, the, you know, then the work will come eventually. Uh, there was a, a, a project there, a maternal and child survival project, that actually requested a volunteer. And so I was fortunate to work with them, and we trained peer educators, so mothers and, and fathers of small children, on things like preventing diarrheal diseases and, mm. and, and uh, you know, family planning and, and breastfeeding and, and basic things. Mm -hmm. um, but that makes a big difference mm -hmm. in, uh, in this kind of a setting. 
And you had not been trained as a nurse. You hadn't oh, had no, no, uh, any, no. any medical training at all. This <laughs> not was, at all. Yeah. No, I'm not a clinician by any stretch. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. and so, but it's it's not technical stuff. It's mm -hmm. very very simple and very basic. And and it's really the communication, mm -hmm. um, and it's the integrating with the community, and it's the, the earning the trust, mm -hmm. and being able to um, adapt and work. And, uh, and succeed in, the, in, a, in a culture that's very different from, from yeah. what I grew up in. Yeah. And that's what I loved. Mm -hmm. So that was Madagascar. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. And then somewhere along the way, you ended up working in Burundi and Uganda and... I did. Mm -hmm. uh, well, immediately after um, Madagascar, I was in Tanzania mm -hmm. for about four years. And there I was working on a national multimedia entertainment education initiative. We hmm. published magazines, we had a television show, we had a website um, targeting young people, mostly around HIV prevention and healthy lifestyles, but you can't only talk about HIV. Mm -hmm. uh, you can't just publish an HIV magazine. So we, what we did is we, we, we packaged it um, in the context of young people's lives, of the things that they're mm -hmm. interested in, of, of music and fashion and relationships and um, education and employment. and uh, and, and, and then, then you earn their trust. Then, then when they see their own interests reflected in the media products we were developing, um, you become their trusted source of information. And, and, and then they listen to it, and then they listen about HIV. Um, but you have, to, you have to put it in, in, in a, a, a way that, that, that resonates with your audience. Mm -hmm. um, so that's what I was doing in Tanzania. Uh, Burundi and Uganda and, and Rw uh, Rwanda, that came later. That was a shorter term assignment when I was, I was spent several years consulting. And um, CARE Norway sent me mm -hmm. to these three countries to work with community-based activists who are working to, um, to fight against gender-based violence. And they needed mm -hmm. some, some tools to do that. So they hired me to come over and, and uh, to meet them, learn about what they were doing, what they're trying to accomplish, and, and uh, help them to create some tools. Yeah, and when you say tools, these are communications tools. These Correct. are sort yeah. of, I, forgive the, if this sounds like a crass term, but sort of a marketing plan. How do you, how do you distribute your message? How can you be heard where you need to be heard? Exactly. It's yeah. whether you're selling a product or you're selling a healthy mm -hmm. behavior mm -hmm. or a certain uh, idea about gender equity. It's, it's all marketing, and the, and the concepts definitely cross over. It's all communication, mm -hmm. and it's you know, understanding your audience, you know, seeing things from their perspective, putting yourselves in their shoes. Um, and, and meeting their needs in that way. It's not that, that I come in and I have a solution and I'm right. fixing what's wrong, not at all. You know, my, my job is, is a, as a facilitator to, to help uh, you know, identify what are the strengths in this community that are already there because no matter how impoverished it may appear to be, there's always some strength, there's always a place to start from. Mm -hmm. So where's that place? And what, what can the community do? How can they work together? First of all, to identify and to articulate, you know, what, what is it that we want to see improved? Um, and what can we do? So health communication, it's not just about delivering information or, or disseminating messages. It's about, it's about facilitating and empowering and, and inspiring and facilitating a peer-to-peer a, a, a peer dialogue. Uh, in my work now, uh, you know, part of what I see is, is uh, you know, people at the central level that want to, that think they have all the answers, yeah. and all I need to do is just give, give, out, give the information and, and things will be better. You know, people aren't listening to me, that's the problem. When in fact, um, it, you know, this one-way top-down communication is, is the, the least effective and um, 
in, in most countries, we'll put it that way. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so so to, to think about health communication and to think about social change and behavior change as more as a, of, a, of a dialogue and more of a, um, you know, how can you inspire that internal motivation rather than uh, expect them to be motivated to change for some external sure. reason. Yeah. Sure. Well, of course, you've been talking about this as, as you've explained what you've been doing, but I, I wanted to ask you a very direct question about, about culture. We talk about gender-based sure. based violence, or yeah. we talk about HIV. Yeah. This is about more than health care and keeping someone from being right. beaten in their home. It really touches every, every part of how we interact as families, Correct. how we're raised as boys and girls, and all the rest of it. And so in all these various uh, countries you've been working in, You've faced different cultural challenges, I suspect. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and I know you've been working with NGOs, so there's, there's a framework around much of what you do. But what kind of pushback do you get from individuals who don't see things the same way you do? Oh, uh, well, that happens all the time. That's to be expected in, in any country, really. Um, and so <laughs> if, if you think of the diffusion of innovation, you know, there's, there's always going to be people on this end, the laggards who you're never going to convince them. So don't waste your time. You, you, you spend your time working with the people who yeah. are, are willing to at least meet you part of the way. Um, and, and if it's hard to find that starting point, um, you may have to spend some time and invest the time to, to look for it. There's always some common ground, always. Um, it may not be obvious, and you may have to, <laughs> you know, have some conversations and have to do some exercises. But uh, but to, once you identify that common ground, then you have a, a foundation that you can work from. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I can only imagine that you're received very warmly by most people when they meet you because you have an open face, you have a big smile, you have an I, I just want to be your friend kind of way about you. And we haven't met before today, but <laughs> I think that's that's an important. Um, element when you come into a space that is not your space. Mm -hmm. And I suspect, uh, well, tell me how it works. Do you, do you try to be sort of unobtrusive for a little while, let people just kind of see you quietly walking down the street before they figure out who you are and why you're there? Or I, I think that's the best approach, mm -hmm. quite honestly, to, you know, to again, come in and, and, and earn, earn their respect. Mm -hmm. um, and when you come in and start uh, giving orders and, and yeah. acting like you yeah. are thinking that you have all the answers mm -hmm. and, and um, that now the expert has arrived, <laughs> you can all just listen to mm -hmm. me. That's not mm -hmm. the way to do it, mm -hmm. not at all, no. So, um, you know, when I think back to Peace Corps, yeah. you know, the first, while you're learning the language, uh, you know, getting to know people, mm -hmm. playing with the children, um, talking to the people at the market, mm -hmm. the entire community, not just the people that you think you want to work with, mm -hmm. um, but everybody, the entire community needs to know that you're there for them. They may not fully understand it because I, I was the mm -hmm. first volunteer to be in this town. So I had to explain, well, you know, what's Peace Corps and why are you here and why are you so far away from your family? Um, but uh, but it, it, it works mm -hmm. because, you, you know, you, you, you put in the time, you put in the efforts, and they, they respect that. Yeah. Um, and, of course, I come in with a very deep respect for them. It's mm -hmm. not that mm -hmm. they're, you know, that I'm, I'm there to save them. That's mm -hmm. not it. Yeah. Uh, again, I'm there as a facilitator to mm -hmm. see what I can do with, with my education mm -hmm. and my training. Um, to, to improve the health outcomes. Yeah. 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 Wow. So um, let's talk a little bit about your work now in, in Bangladesh, because I understand that you have developed, uh, as Sue mentioned, you've developed some e-tools, some digital yes. materials that can be yes. uh, used at the household level. 
Correct. So the government, the Ministry of Health and Family Welfare, actually has a very big uh, army of, of, of these field workers um, who go out to the communities and they, you know, they're door to door and they, they talk to people, they counsel people. Sometimes they sit in the clinics, sometimes they have courtyard meetings, but they're on the ground um, and they're, they're something like 45,000 of them. So there's a, there's a good number. Um, but they, um, you know, they get training, they get trained once when they're hired. And then after that, there's no refresher, there's, they, there's no material. They're supposed to have, the people at the central level think that they have material, oh. you know, flip charts and brochures and things, but they, they don't. Mm -hmm. And so, um, so to address this, this challenge and to, be, to, to give them some tools to do their jobs a little bit better, we assembled um, a digital library of, um, of just different, different printed and audiovisual materials. We didn't create anything new. These were, these were things that had been created by the government and other NGOs and uh, the UN organizations. We compiled them uh, they went through a two-step process. Um, number one, to make sure that they're accurate and reflect current government policy. Number two, we showed them to the field workers and said, is this something you would use in your counseling? Because it's for, it's for them. It doesn't matter if I think it's a good piece. They need to think it's a good piece. So we put it into a digital format. We call it an e-toolkit. Um, it's it's color-coded. It's, um, it's very visual and it's, it's colorful. There's no typing involved. You can't even try to search something. So we designed it in such a way that even if they'd never used a computer before, um, they could figure it out pretty easily. Uh, you know, there, there's just, you know, there's titles and there's categories, and if something needs to be in two categories, it's in two. So to, to make it as easy as possible to find what they're looking for, very intuitive. Mm. And they loved it. The field workers loved it. The clients loved it. Um, it was something new and interesting. It, they, they, the field workers said to us, you know, before, People would ask us questions, and we'd give them an answer, but we weren't really sure it was the right answer. Yeah, and, yeah. But now that we can have this and we can refer to it, um, we're more confident, mm -hmm. and we, we know that we're giving the, the good information, which in increases the confidence of the clients that they're good. So they're, you know, so the status of the field workers goes up. Um, and then the clients are getting integrated information. You know, before you'd get one person talks and com coming to the house and talking about family planning, and someone else will come and talk about, you know, other health topics. Uh, but with the e-toolkits, with all of the, you know, there's the health, the family planning, and nutrition. It's all integrated in one place. They get that integrated information that a household, that a family is looking for. Um, they, they don't make the distinction between health and family planning and nutrition. Um, the same way the people at the central level do. Um, they're just, they're a family trying to, you know, they want to be prosperous. They want their kids to succeed. That's, that's how they, they're, they're thinking in a more holistic manner. Um, so to deliver services in a fragmented manner doesn't serve them well. Um, so they really enjoyed the toolkit too because they, you know, they could see that there were, you know, things, you know, colorful things with pictures or videos. And, and so um, the counseling actually took more time because the clients were asking more questions and they were getting their questions answered. So it was, it was a lot of fun to see that actually happening in the field. Yeah. And so how can you measure success or the effectiveness of it? You, of course, get feedback from the healthcare workers. You hear from individuals who've been helped. But is there any way you can track whether family planning is now done in a, whether there is more intentional family planning now than there was before people learned about right. some of the things they might not have known before? 
Well, this is an interesting question, and it's it's one of those where um, you know how do you how do you quantify mm -hmm. and how do you isolate communication? Mm -hmm. Because it's never in a vacuum. There's always lots of other factors that have to do with uptake and consistent use of family planning. You know, it's 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 access, it's storage, it's you know family pressures, it's cultural norms, it's things like that. So, what role does communication play in all that? It's it's very hard to 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 isolate that and pull that out. Um, we are in the middle of writing a national strategy for social and behavior change communication for the ministry level. There hasn't been one before, and and what one of the things that we're, um, we're, we're, we're trying to say very clearly in this strategy is that communication solutions can solve communication problems. Um, so let me give an example, right? So if, if we want to encourage pregnant women that they should go for prenatal visits, um, we, can, we can track and see what's, what's the rate before and after the communication intervention. Um, however, the impact of that communication intervention on maternal mortality, that's more of a leap. You know, there's, there's more factors involved, there's more, um, there's, there's more things that are influencing what's happening. So, you know, when you, when you talk about measuring, uh, you know, we, we like to measure the, the communication outcomes and the behavioral outcomes, um, but the ultimate, the health outcomes, like the mortality numbers and, and the, the total fertility rate, things like that, that's a little bit harder to isolate, um, yeah. but, uh, but communication absolutely has a role to play, along with service delivery and trained human resources and lots of other things as well. So in Bangladesh, what yeah. language are you using? Oh, I'm using English. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, because I'm working at the central level, yeah. uh, and so most of my work is directly with the Ministry of Health at mm -hmm. the, at the, you know, mm -hmm. work, working at the policy and advocacy level. Uh, but they they speak Bangla in Bangladesh. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So you've been there, I think you said, since 2012. Correct. Yeah. So so tell us about life in Bangladesh. What is a day like for you? Um, it's very intense. <laughs> so it, Bangladesh is the most crowded country in the world. So imagine um, 160 million people, so half the population of this country, living in a land mass the size of Iowa. And much of that is uninhabitable because it's, it's rivers coming in from India. It's sitting on an alluvial plain. A lot of it's just sand or, or mangrove forest. Um, Bangladesh is a, it's a country that's very um, it's precarious because of how it's located geographically. Uh, just a, a, it's at sea level and a very small rise in the sea levels due to climate change and the the you know the southern coasts. The people that live there are having a very hard time because the groundwater is becoming more saline. Um, so crops that used to grow are not growing. Uh, health implications that you wouldn't necessarily think of, because they're not drinking salt water, of yeah, course, sure. but, um, but they're washing their dishes with the water and they're washing their bodies with the water. So um, hypertension, um, other, like other cardiovascular diseases, preeclampsia in mm. pregnant women. So I mean, the health implications are, are quite serious. Mm. Um, they're in a very vulnerable position. So I live in Dhaka, the capital city. It's, it's very crowded. People are flooding in every day. Um, the, it's, it's, it's noisy, it's colorful, it's vibrant. Um, there's, um, the, the people are so resilient and so resourceful. You know, to be living in a place, that's, it's difficult. I mean, it's a difficult place to live, but so resourceful. And, and one of my favorite things is um, these rickshaws, these, these bicycle rickshaws that a lot of people use to get around. Um, 
they're they're pure utilitarian. You just have to get from point A to point B, mm -hmm. um, but they're decorated beautifully and colorfully and, and artistically. And they, they don't need to be, but they are. And it's it, I think it's a really charming, lovely thing. And and the you know the dresses are, are colorful and beautiful. And so it's um, you know there's there, there's a lot of poverty. There's a lot of difficulty. Um, crowded and noise and, and streets or the infrastructure is simply not there. Um, there's a lot of, you know, the people coming in from the countryside looking for employment. Uh, they set up these, uh, you know, these sort of makeshift homes in the slum areas um, and they're very vulnerable to any kind of flooding or storms or, um, but they, you know, they, they make it happen. Somehow they survive. So one, one of the things I, I do um, in my spare time is I work with a, a, a nonprofit that was formed by three American women, and we, we, we feed school children in the slums of, of Dhaka. So this, it was important for me to be able to see that part of the city uh, and not just go back and forth between my home and, and the diplomatic area and my office and, and just back and forth. Yeah. Um, but to actually see the real people and how they live and to interact and, and have more of a Peace Corps yeah. uh, perspective of the city. And so that's, that's been really wonderful too. And, and children are children. You know, they, they, they want to go to school and they, they love to learn and they love to play. Um, so I'm always happy when I have a chance to, to go visit them. Yeah, mm -hmm. and uh, the, some of the photographs you sent us ahead of time show you with all these happy little kids oh, around you. And, and yeah. um, um, what is the what is the future for a kid who lives in the slums oh in Bangladesh? Yeah, well, you 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 hope <coughs> that um, they ho you hope they find a way out, mm -hmm. uh, and that's why that's why a lot of them who have come in from the countryside to live in the city, that's, they're looking for opportunity. Um, you, I mean, but you hope they find a better way. Yeah. But there's no guarantee, mm -hmm. for sure. I mean, it's, it's, it's a competitive, very crowded city. Um, the fertility rate is still above replacement level. So, it, I mean, the, the population is already so, so densely populated, but it's still expected to grow, um, even if fertility creeps down bit by bit. And we're looking at several decades of growth before it could turn around. Mm -hmm. um, so that's that's going to continue to be an issue. Yeah. So employment, um, nutrition, you know, feeding. It's amazing yeah. how much food they're able to produce mm -hmm. with the amount of land that they have and the amount of people that they have. Yeah. Um, but there will continue to be pressures. Uh, due to the population and due to mm -hmm. climate change sure. and uh, other factors as well. Would you, uh, if we look at, at data from the last 20 years, mm -hmm. has child mortality improved? Do those, those numbers significantly, have yeah, significantly. To the, to the point where um, the number one cause of death for children between ages one and five is actually drowning. Wow. And it's not that the number of drownings has increased, it's that the, the mortality due to infectious disease has gone down mm -hmm. dramatically. Um, and part of that is, is um, it's basic hygiene. You know, people know how to prepare food and to wash their hands. And they also know what to do if a child has diarrhea, the, uh, the oral rehydration salts. Mm -hmm. um, there's a huge market for that, and that, that's been one of the big success stories in Bangladesh is that, that this ORS is very widely accepted. And so, uh, you know, if, if a child has diarrhea, they'll, they'll, they'll bounce back because mm -hmm. they, they, they're, they're, their parents, their caregivers know what to do. Right. So that's a huge success. And they have, uh, you know, one of the Millennium Development Goals. They're, they're one of the countries that have actually achieved their goal for reduction in child mortality. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. Good. I'm glad yeah. to hear that. And, yeah. and uh, I think we could talk all night, but it's such a, such a pleasure for us to have had the chance to meet you. And congratulations again on the good work you do and Thank on you. your acknowledgement here at Thank this you. university. Um, Rebecca Arnold, the winner of this year's two th- uh, the 2015 International Impact Award. I hope all of you can stay with us for the second segment in this uh, series. We'll, we'll be talking to two professors from the College of Public Health uh, about their work. And uh, I want to remind you that all World Canvas programming can be found on YouTube, iTunes, UITV, and the International Program's website, which is international.uiowa.edu. So I'm Joan Kerr, and for UI International Programs, thank you very much for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Hello, and welcome to World Canvas from International Programs at the University of Iowa. I'm Joan Kerr, and we're coming to you from Film Scene in downtown Iowa City. This is part two of our three-part series investigating some of the major public health issues facing populations around the world. And my guests in this segment are Edith Parker, Professor of Community and Behavioral Health in the University of Iowa College of Public Health. Thank you for being here. Mm -hmm. Next to her is Will Story, who's an assistant professor of community and behavioral health, also in the University of Iowa College of Public Health. Thank you, Will. Thanks. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, Edith, I want to go to you first. You wrote the nomination letter for uh, Rebecca Arnold for Mm -hmm. this year's International Impact Award, and uh, we've just had the opportunity to talk to Rebecca. And I suspect that the kind of passion she brings to this work is very familiar to you with other students and other colleagues you work with in, in public health. Why is this field such a compelling and sort of personally engaging field? Ah, great question. You know, I think what draws, interestingly enough, what draws a lot of people to public health is either they've had international experiences like uh, Rebecca have or some come to us and then go on. But I think it really is what distinguishes public health from, say, medicine is the focus on prevention. Um, and, and so I think it's really exciting. You're also working with communities and not sort of one individual at a time, but really trying to do, to help people really to, um, to do healthy behaviors. And, uh, and as Rebecca said, not necessarily by telling them what to do. We say uh, information is probably necessary, but never sufficient to get somebody to do, to change a behavior, but rather how you can set up really supportive environments to help that person do what will impact their health, but also just their quality of life. Yeah. So, so therefore, uh, the, the sort of humility we heard from Rebecca when she was talking about, um, you know, providing some tools. But, you know, she's not responsible for all of the success there may be now in, in um, child, uh, you know, health or whatever, that you, you do what you can in the communication side, but then these field workers, um, family members, uh, Everybody pitches in, and it be, that's what the behavioral and community health part of all of this yeah, absolutely, is. Absolutely, mm-hmm. absolutely that, and a real strong emphasis for our students, both if they're going on to do research or to do practices, Rebecca has, or I suspect you, Rebecca does a little bit of both, um, is participation. So not coming in with the idea of what needs to be done here, but coming in with the school uh, skill set of how you can engage with communities to say, what are your issues here? How can we work with you? Um, to sort of identify what those are and then to help you to uh, attack those or really reduce them if it's a if it's a health risk factor. Mm-hmm. So help me understand how, how it would work. I know that there are um, non-governmental organizations that sure. are sometimes involved. There might be a ministry of health in a particular country or there might be a local government that sees a need and so on. Um, the, the conversation that needs to happen um, 
is your assistance, uh, say a USAID-funded operation, that assistance would be requested by the home government or by the community? Or would USAID say, gosh, we see a real problem here, uh, a very uh, a population with great poverty and very little ability to feed its children, or we see very high mortality rates. Mm -hmm. um, how does that identification of a community in need happen? I'm going to actually probably turn that to <laughs> Will. <laughs> sure, and I think Rebecca addressed this as well in some of her work with the Peace Corps, especially when she was embedded in a, in a community. But I think the first thing is, is working with organizations that are present in that community. Mm -hmm. So if you're identifying children in a need, people that are particularly vulnerable, socially excluded, um, you know, for whatever reason, um, that it's finding uh, an organization that is there to meet their needs. And a lot of times that's a local organization that may be a really small non-governmental organization. Um, it may be a community health worker with the government that's working in partnership with that non-governmental organization. Um, but as far as getting that, that funding to those people who, who need it in a way that's helpful to them, um, that's where partnerships are really important. And I think um, you know, what we do in, in our department in order to really address community health needs is working in partnerships with the community. So it's finding those organizations that are there, partnering with them to identify the needs of the community, first of all, what they perceive their needs to be, um, and then finding a way to articulate that to uh, an organization like USAID um, to be able to bring in funding that, that's uh, really critical to, to meet those needs. And then going forward to work, continue to work in partnership with that community to address those needs and, and to report on those needs. So building the capacity of that community, of that organization, um, to be able to monitor how children, how children are progressing and growing, um, how their behaviors are changing, the caretakers' behaviors are changing, um, the providers' care, uh, uh, behaviors are changing, um, to be able to report back to that donor so that hopefully you can continue to support um, that organization and that community. But ideally, that that community would be thriving at the end of that, that they would be able to sustain that on their own with their own resources. Yeah. What can you tell us about uh, the work you individually do, the research you do, the sort of focus you have in your own teaching and sure, in your sure. research, and then also you will? Sure. Well, I have uh, I've actually have done international work before and, um, and have a project just finished up a couple of years ago in Ghana where we were looking at Borrelia's ulcer, which is a flesh-eating bacterial infection, and trying to figure out the transmission rate. And I'm not sure we've done it definitively, but made some progress. But a lot of my work now is here in, uh, actually in the state of Iowa, where we're working with uh, colleagues down in Otomwa, Iowa, um, on a community academic partnership funded by the Centers for Disease Control uh, around obesity and trying to increase physical activity within the community. So using a lot of the methods, I think, that we train our students for, for global health as well as for working here in Iowa, not necessarily that uh, uh, DACA and Otomwa are the same, but when you're coming into a community, then you are an outsider um, when you're coming from Iowa City to Otomwa um, in much of the same way that you might be when you're going to Bangladesh. So how do you sort of understand what's going on in that community, reach out to folks, do assessment, design uh, intervention or program activities, and then evaluate it to see if it worked. Mm -hmm. So that's where um, a lot of my work is now. I've also done a lot around childhood asthma and looking at environmental causes. And I think the theme of all of these has been really doing a participatory approach.
Yeah, wow. Uh, well, before we move to you, well, I'm, I'm very interested in this project in Ottumwa, and I know that there are communities all over Iowa and in many parts of the country where people are concerned about high obesity rates and, and children who have um, sure. higher obesity rates than all of us would like. Um, um, what kinds of programmatic interventions are you, you and the community developing? Sure. It's very interesting. We're actually using a model that uh, is not that dissimilar to what Rebecca was talking about uh, in terms of a community health worker. This is one where we identify um, key influentials in the community. We call them lay health advisors, or we, we're calling ours physical activity leaders. They've uh, been identified as people who are really important in, in other people's community members' social networks. So have a lot of influence, and we're recruiting them to sort of be leaders for physical activity, to encourage those within their social group, their network, be it a church, be it a friendship. Uh, maybe they'll establish a walking group. Maybe they'll just try to say, hey, Edith, instead of going to work, go to the gym first, and then go to work. But yeah. sort of the messaging, um, but working with folks who are already familiar to those that mm -hmm. we're trying to help change those behaviors. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Sure. Uh, and so, Will, what, what do you concentrate on in your work? Yeah, again, it's similar to what um, Rebecca was talking about earlier, um, in that there, just like there are a lot of biological determinants of health, and when you're talking about behavioral health, there are also a lot of social determinants you have to consider. So decisions that people have to make in order to choose to live a healthy lifestyle, um, those decisions may look very different for different people, uh, depending on your education, your income level, your race, ethnicity, um, and even some social and cultural factors. So that's really a, a lot of my research and teaching is uh, really wrapped around better understanding those social determinants of health and health-seeking behaviors. So most of my work, actually all my work at this point, is outside the United States uh, in South Asia and Sub-Saharan Africa. Um, and I really focus on um, three areas. One is in uh, looking at families and how can families be involved in decision-making about health. Um, so we're here in the United States, a lot of times we're talking about obesity uh, prevention um, and all the, the diseases that are wrapped up with um, obesity and, and encouraging physical activity. Um, in a lot of the communities that I work in, uh, it's about getting access to care, um, sp especially for, for mothers. So in, in Bangladesh, where I do a lot of my work as well, 70% of the moms are still delivering their children at home, and a lot of them are delivering those children um, with untrained traditional birth attendants. Um, it's just the way that their parents have done it, so it's generation after generation. Um, but it's communicating how to get those women the care that they need when they need it, whether that's bringing skilled care to them or getting them to a health facility to receive that, that type of care. And how can the family be involved in making those decisions? Because a lot of times women aren't empowered to make those decisions on their own. Um, maybe their husband is con controlling some of the financial resources in their home, so she needs to seek his approval. How is he involved in that decision-making process? Does he value her health and, her, and their children's health um, as a really important financial investment? And it should be considered that way. How is the community involved in that process? And that's really the second area of, of my research is looking at the community as a resource. So as we invest a lot of uh, time and, uh, into education for maybe human capital, um, into uh, financial uh, areas for economic capital. People are also investing into their relationships 
maybe who don't have access to financial and educational resources. They're investing in their relationships and we call that social capital. So how are they in investing into those relationships so that they can gain new ideas and new resources, maybe from people they wouldn't normally associate with. So finding ways to link people who are, as I was mentioning earlier, socially excluded with people who are more in the mainstream and have those new ideas um, to be able to promote better health. And so getting those people who are more excluded, uh, more included, um, so that they can have the same choices that are available to everyone. Um, and then evaluating the third area is really evaluating uh, interventions that are um, promoting stronger ho homes and households and stronger communities to be able to promote those healthy lifestyles. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned working in Bangladesh, but uh, you also wrote to me about uh, an effort in India to engage religious leaders to help eradicate polio and in Rwanda, managing childhood illness at home. Can you tell us a little more about any of those yeah, efforts? So this, this, isn't, this isn't my own work. These are great examples of how people are bringing health and addressing those social and cultural determinants to bring uh, health to those who need it. So in India, which was recently this year um, declared polio-free, which is a huge accomplishment um, as we're thinking about eradicating polio from, from the earth, which is just amazing to even consider. But some of the most resistant populations happen to be small pockets of people who, again, are more marginalized, excluded in India, which is predominantly Hindu. There are lower castes, also Muslims who are um, uh, in that area of India, just didn't have the opportunities that other Indians did um, and didn't have access to the same information. They were listening to the imams or the religious leaders um, who were promoting information and a lot of misinformation about immunizations, uh, specifically related to polio. And there are a lot of misconceptions about immunizations from um, some real, really far-fetched ideas about some conspiracy um, to just some basic ideas that it, may, it might not be effective at all, so why would I want to uh, harm my child? Um, and any parent can understand when you're putting something foreign into your child's body, it's a very traumatic experience. And so if you have no idea of what it's for and what it can do to help them, then you're going to face uh, a, a very difficult decision. And so it was those pockets that were really resistant. So it was working with those religious leaders. And I think it was over 70% of those religious leaders who were, again, partnered in, considered a, a partner in this campaign to eradicate polio, not considered um, you know, a, a participant in a program, but considered a partner and a collaborator. Um, that 70% of those religious leaders actually were uh, chose to promote immunization to um, the people in, in, in their congregations to be able to, uh, to make a difference. And I think that was one of the big reasons why we saw uh, polio eradicated. Um, Rwanda, just briefly, is, is a different story after um, the genocide in 94, saw a, a lot of investment in bringing community health workers and bringing health to the home. And again, that's a really important thing in, in rural areas. People don't have access to care is bringing that health to the home. And the government has made a huge commitment to community-based management of childhood illnesses. So a lot of these illnesses that kids are dying of uh, in countries like Bangladesh and Rwanda, diarrheal disease, pneumonia, um, uh, malaria, they're managing those illnesses in the home, being able to provide treatment in the home. Again, fairly lay providers who are able to identify basic symptoms of disease and get that treatment to them as quickly as they need it so that you can uh, see kids survive longer. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So within the College of Public Health and in your particular areas, uh, you see students coming in who, who want to be in this field, but who start, as all of us do, without really knowing very much. How do you, how do you get them 
into this program so that they understand what their eventual role is likely to be, uh, what the outside parameters are of that role, when we might be pushing something beyond the comfort zone of the community so that you create enemies rather than building partnerships. How, how do you talk to your students about such things? Start. <laughs> <laughs> we, uh, you know, I think we have a, a pretty strong curriculum for sort of issues where we have a new uh, uh, class, relatively new, called Health Equity, and it handles a lot of the issues that Will was talking about, social determinants, but also sort of interpersonally how you work with different cultures, practice cultural humility of understanding others. Um, and we actually have been um, very fortunate in the last few years to begin to um, have funds to send students for... Um, internships, um, uh, both from a donation from the Baker family that has supported some students. I think you may hear from some later tonight. Um, but we're really trying um, with um, our Dean Curry has, has also put some funds in to really begin to set up opportunities for, for students to, to go overseas and to experience it. And I think what I've been pleased about um, uh, the initiative I sit on the committee is the committee's strong belief that we need to have opportunities for um, students uh, such as Rebecca, who already came with a fair amount of experience, so, you know, she sort of said, I want to go, and we had to hold her back because she already knew. But others that may not have any experience and how to make sure that we have a safe, valuable, partnered experience for them, and, and we've identified some possibilities there. So, that's. And I think it's, it's, it's listening to their story, hearing what they... Uh, what the students are, are really passionate about and excited in, as Rebecca talked about her passions and finding that passion, it, it's, it's a journey. And so not all students coming in are going to know what that is right away, but giving them opportunities, I think, like uh, the College of Public Health is doing in order to discover what that passion may be. Sharing my story, I was not, you know, I knew nothing about public health as an undergraduate, and um, it was really going overseas and having that experience where I was teaching English that I was exposed to a, a world that was outside of my little bubble um, and understanding that there are needs uh, out there that um, maybe, maybe I can't address them all, but I can be a small drop in the bucket and, and start to, to do something to make a difference. And so finding out what that may be, because there's so much to do. You don't want students to get overwhelmed by all the things that, that, they, could, that they could do. You don't want the, them to try to tackle too much. But what is their niche and what, how can they make a unique contribution um, whether it's here at home in Iowa or if it's globally um, on, on sort of the health of, of populations. Yeah, I was wondering whether um, public health uh, is one of those areas like maybe social work or even teaching where there you really have to have the heart to do it because you'll see a lot of, a lot of things that are very hard to deal with. You take a lot home with you, I'm sure. You see some lack of success in certain areas, or things don't get done as quickly as you'd like them to get done. Um, but then, you know, if you have a certain amount of perspective, or you talk to somebody who's been in the field longer, they can kind of help you get a sense of, of that kind of context and perspective. But do you have to deal with a certain amount of burnout sometimes, or just frustration within this field? Absolutely. I mean, <laughs> I think of any career, of people who are really passionately committed to it. Um, it's a fine line between your life and your personal life and, and your career, it, it's, and it's blended. Um, and so that I think it, it sort of overlaps, and you have to be careful to be able to draw, <laughs> to draw those lines so that you don't get burnout. And the same goes with what we're asking 
our partners to do. So when I'm working with uh, my colleagues, whether it's in India or Bangladesh or Kenya, um, and I, you know, we, maybe we have a grant deadline, and yes, it's going to do something remarkable and uh, potentially save a lot of lives. Um, and we're both very passionate about it. We also have to respect each other's boundaries. <laughs> um, and I think that's especially hard sometimes when we're um, sort of the liaison between the, the donor, the, the funder, um, and uh, the, the funder may be putting a lot of pressures on us. And we have to be able to manage that in a way that makes it um, possible for our, our in-country partners to be able to do the really important work that's happening on the ground. Um, can't ever take away from that. And so that, that comes out through, um, you know, just being a, a, a good time manager, but also um, being able to, to find ways to not take away from implementation, but still being able to um, measure outcomes, which takes a, a, lot, a lot of extra time, too. Um, so I think it is, it's, it's finding that balance um, between the two so that you don't burn out and you're able to continue to do that work. Um, and I think as you go through it with, your, um, with, with the different partners uh, and collaborators, um, you're able to sort of be a support for one another as well. Right. right. Well, before we wrap up this segment, I wonder if you could each just tell us what your most rewarding moment so far in, in this career has been. Is there something that, that um, you know, really stands out? It, you know, previous to coming to, to Iowa, I worked in Detroit, um, which I think has been in the news for all the bad reasons. And I think that my partnerships there and, and the commitment of folks and the strengths I saw in what they were coming to and, and contributing to our partnership, uh, which was focused on childhood asthma, really was just a highlight. And the fact that with their input, we were able to really improve kids' asthma-related health um, was just really fun. Mm -hmm. That's it. Before I came back um, to academia and, and working at the university, um, I worked for an NGO, and I think uh, for me it was seeing it was a, it's a really small NGO um, that was doing tremendous work at, in, in in a way that I feel like was really helpful to communities and putting a lot of their resources in the communities that they were serving, um, and uh, I was able to see. Um, bring that good work to light and see a lot of funding come in for that organization that they didn't have um, before. And I think that was just tremendous because I think they were able to accomplish a lot more um, over a period of time. And to be a part of that was, was really rewarding. Yeah. Mm -hmm. well, I think we're, both, we're all very lucky to have you both here at the University of Iowa. And, and I want to say thank you to Will Story. Thank you also for the great commentary you wrote for the Press Citizen. I appreciate Absolutely. that. It's my and, pleasure. And yeah, so Will Story and Edith Parker from the College of Public Health. I hope those of you who are with us now can stay with us for the uh, third part, the final part of this series on public health challenges around the world. We'll be talking to three graduate students in the College of Public Health and learn about research they've been conducting in Gambia, India, and Ecuador. World Canvas programming is available on YouTube, iTunes, UITV, and the International Programs website, which is international.uiowa.edu. I'm Joan Kerr. Thank you very much for being with us, and we'll see you next time. Hello, and welcome to World Canvas from International Programs at the University of Iowa. I'm Joan Kerr. We're coming to you from Film Scene in downtown Iowa City, and happy to have so many of you with us here this afternoon on a program focusing on some of the public health issues facing populations around the world and efforts to improve health outcomes 
for individuals and communities concerned. In this segment, we're going to be talking with three students in the University of Iowa College of Public Health whose research and hands-on work touches people in such geographically diverse locations as India, Gambia, and Ecuador. Next to me is Maya Ramaswamy, PhD student in occupational and environmental health in the College of Public Health, and uh, you did some research in India. Thank you for being with us, Maya. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Next to her is Jake Kundert, uh, a Master's of Public Health student in Community and Behavioral Health in the College of Public Health, and I know you've done some work in Gambia. That's right. Yes, thank you for being here, Jake. And at the far end, we have Natalia Santos, who is a Master's of Public Health student also in Community and Behavioral Health in the College of Public Health, and you've done some work in Ecuador. So I'm anxious to hear about what you've all been up to. And um, Maya, let's start with you. Uh, I know that you spent some time in India, and you were also one of the bloggers for the College of Public Health while you were there. Yeah. Tell us what you were looking into. So we were looking at the physical work demands uh, related to uh, health outcomes in tea harvesters in India. The tea production industry uh, is very important to the region, um, and we also know that the labor workforce is very important to this area because um, mechanization of agriculture is just not possible um, when you're doing tea harvesting. The tea bushes are on a very steep incline. Um, up in the mountains. So um, the labor force uh, is very important and they do very manual labor intensive um, picking. Mm -hmm. What were some of the health problems they were having as workers? Well, so part of our project was trying to estimate what the health outcomes were mm -hmm. in this population. It's um, very little literature on the population. We just yeah. don't have a lot of information. Mm -hmm. um, so we asked them questions about musculoskeletal pain, things like low back pain, uh, shoulder pain, neck pain, mm -hmm. um, feet. Uh, we also asked them about their injury rates um, and then their general health and their mental health. Wow. Wow. And um, so how, how do you get out into the field to talk to the tea workers, laborers? So we were really lucky to partner with a local university. Uh, we traveled up into the mountains. It was about um, a six-hour drive from the university that we were working with. Um, so drive up drove up into the mountains um, and then we took our interviewers from the university and we um, spoke to workers on several different tea estates so they're big plantations all over a town up in the hills wow wow and did you speak also to the management of the uh, the tea companies or the plantations yeah yeah mm -hmm. um, so a really important part of this research is not just talking to the workers but kind of understanding who else influences the work mm -hmm. so we spoke to supervisors who were out in the field with mm -hmm. the workers too Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, I suspect you got feedback regarding injuries and so on from mm -hmm. from that side, the administrative side, as yeah. well as the workers themselves. Was there anything that seemed surprising to you as you began this work? Um, I think what we were really surprised about is um, how the workers perceived their work tasks. Mm -hmm. um, they did find that it was very labor-intensive, um, but they also really enjoyed their work and they appreciated what value it brought to them. They were able to make a living. Um, they're able to educate their children. So mm -hmm. while the work might be really intensive, it also has a lot of benefits for them. Mm -hmm. Did you happen to learn whether, for many of these workers, this was a multi-generational um, mm -hmm. kind of labor? Yes, or, definitely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so over the years, a lot of these uh, workers have had their family, like their uh, parents and grandparents, working in the fields. Um, what's changing is that as the children are being educated, they're able to move out of these towns, um, go to get their higher education, 
and then they leave. And so um, that's, that's a benefit of this work, but then we also see how that's affecting the industry, so <laughs> less of a workforce. The industry and then also the families, because okay. as the parents get older, the kids aren't right there in that exactly. community any longer. Yeah. yeah, and that can have a lot of uh, different consequences. So who's going oh. to take care of their parents as they get older? Yeah, yeah. Sure, unfortunately, sure. that's not something we focus mm -hmm. on, but that's an area mm -hmm. that a lot of other students might be able to yeah. look yeah. at. Well, now, so do you have plans to go back? Is this a continuing area of Yes, we research? definitely hope yeah. so. Um, we would like to use this information to kind of identify other sources of influences, mm. um, and then eventually identify interventions or opportunities mm. for interventions. Um, I think Rebecca spoke about um, coming in and, and not assuming that you know what the problem is mm -hmm. or how to fix a problem. So mm -hmm. the first step of our project was to kind of understand what the problem might be, and then we want to identify areas for interventions yeah. later yeah. on. Wow, great. Well, thank you, Maya. Yeah. Um, good. So I want to move down to you, Jake, and uh, ask you to talk to us a little bit about Gambia. Sure. So I'm interested in food systems and how food systems are different um, culturally in local community areas and um, federal levels, regional areas, and then also internationally, how they can differ depending on where you are. So I wanted to go to the Gambia and look at their food system. So that was kind of the, the theme of the, the project I was working on through the MERT scholarship mm -hmm. here at Iowa. Mm -hmm. um, so the MERT scholarship works, it's a connection between the University of Iowa and then the University of the Gambia. And so we work with them and they set up uh, a, uh, a project or they um, help us coordinate with different sites to look into what, we, what mm -hmm. our aims are. Mm -hmm. And so, I spent 10 weeks in Gambia and I was split between um, a food, si uh, food safety organization, the National Food Safety Organization, um, the National Nutrition Agency, and then I spent uh, a couple weeks on a farm. Mm -hmm. And so got to look at all these different uh, actors in the food system, food safety as well as distribution and um, the nutrition, the actual, uh, that side of it, and then the production. Wow. Yeah. Was there anything about Gambia in particular that made this a particularly great spot to study? With just this connection with the university there? Yeah, just mm -hmm. the connection with the university. They've been going there for 20 years, I believe, through the Mert Scholarship. And so there's a, a strong bond between us and them, and um, it's, a, it's a good working relationship. Yeah. So, so what particularly uh, interested you as you looked at these various parts of, of food production and getting food from you know, uh, where it grows to where it's eaten? Yeah, so depending, like I said, these, these cultural aspects have are strong drivers of food systems, um, as well as economic issues, um, the income of people, and, and what kind of food you, can, you have access to and is available to you. Um, so looking at Gambia, I, I usually have more of a focus on the production side, so uh, I spent some time with women's gardens. Women gardeners have the... Usually every community in the Gambia has um, a plot of land that's dedicated to women who, who garden and produce food for them, themselves and their families, but then they sell the excess in the market. Um, so that was really interesting to me, mm -hmm. and I think there are a number of areas where we can, as public health uh, professionals, can um, help get involved in those programs to improve yields, improve access, and, and coordinate that whole system to improve Mm -hmm. um, availability of food to mm -hmm. the, the population. 
Well, and you, you said that these are women's gardens. So is, is gardening considered women's work, or is it just that this is something special for uh, women take special ownership of these? Women take special ownership of these in particular. Um, so there's a lot of um, peanut farming in Gambia and rice production. So these larger plots, women work in these as well, um, but that tends to be more um, male farmers that take care of these larger, larger production. Um, and that's only set during a certain time of the year. Mm. Um, but the women's gardens is all year round, and that tends to be more focused on mm -hmm. women. Mm -hmm. And do they have, um, what is the, the weather like, the drought status? Is Gambia a place that tends to have pretty reliable harvests, and people can generally feed themselves? Not, not a huge starvation issue there? Well, uh, interesting. Uh, Rebecca was talking about climate change, mm -hmm. and that is, I have not read any specific um, reports on climate change in the Gambia, but mm -hmm. just the local kind of dialogue about climate change is that it's affecting this, this rainy season. They wait for the rain to plant their, their rice and their uh, peanuts. Mm -hmm. And usually it starts raining, I believe, in, in the beginning of May. And when I left in August, it had just begun this oh. year. And um, it also, that happened around the same time as Ramadan, and it's a primarily Muslim society. Yeah. Um, and so people aren't eating during the day. They don't want to mm -hmm. go out and work in the fields in the hot sun. So yeah, yeah. that was kind of had an impact in mm -hmm. the production mm -hmm. as well. Yeah. Well, in a note we shared before we did this program, you mentioned a term that I, I was very attracted to, and maybe it's a very common term within the world of public health, but cultural humility. You said right. that, you know, we, we spend some time um, learning about how we should look at ourselves within this larger world and how we present ourselves. Um, tell me something about that. Yeah, absolutely. So we talk a lot about um, cultural competency and cultural humility. And what, what we kind of, the, the discussion that we have is that competency, um, and feel free to jump in, <laughs> but um, suggests that there's an endpoint where you become culturally competent. But with cultural humility, it's more you're approaching a group of people and realizing that you don't, mm -hmm. that that's just not going to happen. So you need to um, kind of hold that humility and be humble when you approach a, a culture different from your own, mm -hmm. whether it be on the other side of the world or mm -hmm. in, in Ottumwa, Iowa, or wherever it may mm -hmm. be, um, and just be there to, to learn as much as possible and, yeah. and be humble. Yeah. Well, sticking with the, the food production side of things again and food systems, um, you know, I think about public health, I guess what comes to my mind is that there's something that is causing a health issue that you might, you might be investigating food production and food systems because you're concerned about a particular health outcome. I, is that the case with what you're working on or you're just generally trying to uh, understand how food is produced and moves into the population? What I, what I really like about food systems and food production as mm -hmm. well is um, there's so many health, health issues involved. You can think about um, health, the environmental impacts of, of agriculture in a lot of ways, and then um, workers' issues, mm -hmm. um, and then diet-related disease and food access mm -hmm. and malnutrition. So I think there's just a number of, of ways you can approach mm -hmm. food within mm -hmm. public health that I think is mm -hmm. really interesting. Mm -hmm. Well, let's uh, talk to you a little bit, Natalia, about the work you've done. Uh, so you were in Ecuador. Correct. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I was in Ecuador. also started with that interest in food. 
guess we're big fans of food in the College of Public Health. <laughs> um, but when I was writing my grant to go down there for funding, I had a very good idea of what I wanted to do with transnational food and with the research that I'm working here now and how people's environments impact their diet and all of that. And it sounded really great. So when I got down there, and I was working with the University of San Francisco, Quito, um, their College of Public Health. And they're one of the first things that they did is like, okay, well, I'm going to take you to the health center. All right, well, let's go. <laughs> and quickly, my research idea or like my job there changed because you saw a need that wasn't food related. Um, even though my interest was to do some work with research in food and see what the access looked like, the need was different. Um, so we turned into working at the health centers and provide wellness education to the patients in their waiting rooms. Um, it was supposed to be one lecture a day and do it different topics each day, but it just turned out I was there for four to five hours, just doing the cycle of information and lectures and being on my toes and doing different ways and however people wanted to talk about, I would be able to do there. So nutrition, um, family planning, overall wellness, physical activity, uh, hygiene, it just covered up everything. And then just seeing how the departments was working and treating the people there. So you worked in what kind of, this was in a health center, you had a sort of a little space that was a uh, room people could, or part of the no. hallway <laughs> where people could talk to you. No, yeah, I had, I was in three different health centers in the time I was there, uh, in Kumbaco, Kumbaya, and people. And uh, I would just take the bus and go to these different ones. And uh, there wasn't a space for me. Hmm. So I would be in the waiting room, and I would have um, this brown paper, like big just paper and some markers that I bought, at a grocery store, I'm like, okay, well, we're gonna do this. So I would draw them my plate, and you know, there wasn't any materials ready, so I had to do it all in Spanish, like on the fly, like this is what we're gonna do, this is different activities. Um, and then trying to find materials that already existed, because I didn't wanna give brand new information that they've never heard before that's not culturally acceptable. Yeah. Um, so having to go to the doctors and say, like, what are you guys talking about in family planning here? Like, what are you talking about when it comes to breastfeeding and getting that information out? Mm -hmm. um, because reflecting on how quickly the doctors had the time to see the patients, mm -hmm. you can talk to them that they have anemia or you can talk to them that they have hypertension. But with the limited amount of time that you have with this patient, are they understanding why? Mm -hmm. Are they understanding what that is and what is anemia? How am I getting it? How do I get better? Because mm -hmm. the doctors just don't have enough time mm -hmm. to sit down with all these patients and mm -hmm. do what um, I was there to do. Mm -hmm. So we really just kind of spent a lot of time with the education part and the patients are waiting about 15, mm -hmm. 30 minutes, an hour sometimes. So they wanted to be entertained. Yeah. And I was yeah. there for that. <laughs> Yeah, and, and did the questions uh, throughout the period of time you were there, and you'd have new people in every day that you were teaching, were the questions almost always the same, or the things they were curious about, did they tend to be the same? Some of them were. Um, when we talked about breastfeeding, you know, after a while I got in the swing of things, and like, this mm -hmm. is what I'm going to cover. Um, so when can I start actually giving my baby hard foods? Um, when can I, um, how do I clean 
prepare myself? Am I clean to yes, do it? So yes. the questions, you saw a pattern, mm -hmm. but every day was different. Um, and one of the days that I really remembered, um, we were talking about women's bodies because the basic knowledge of your anatomy differs. Mm -hmm. um, and I had an older lady come to me and she was very concerned about menopause. What is that? She okay. heard that once you get it, you die. Mm. Mm. And it, I had to keep my face like, okay, well, let's talk about menopause and go over this because mm -hmm. you, you could see the real fear in her face that she was concerned that she was going to get menopause and die. Mm -hmm. So it's that kind of information. You never know what's coming and you never know what they've been taught. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's not that they were taught by their doctors wrong information, but right. it's more of what they've been hearing around in their town, mm -hmm. what their mother told them, or maybe they saw someone that mm -hmm. got menopause and then happened mm -hmm. to die and mm -hmm. they just put one and two together. Mm -hmm. So you have to come in a way like, how can I present this knowledge without saying, well, everything you know is wrong. Mm -hmm. So it, yeah. was, it was different every day. Yeah. And did you have, um, did you use any written materials? Um, I imagine some of these people don't have very um, extensive education or might not be able to, to read uh, very uh, sort of scientific <laughs> materials. Yeah. So I, I got some information from the Ministry of Health from Ecuador. The pamphlets that they were giving out on family planning and um, different condom usages and the cycle mm -hmm. and breastfeeding and all of that. And I had that with me, but a majority of my presentation was talking. Mm -hmm. I would draw pictures on um, the board, my paper, mm -hmm. and really talk to them and have these activities of how do we eat a rainbow? What does that mean? And talking about different foods. Are they familiar with purple fruits and things like that? Yeah. Um, not so much on just that information being given, but being aware that the health literacy would be low. So let's mm -hmm. talk about it in a way that would be understandable. And it helped because I was also practicing my Spanish. And I would tell them, yeah. like, oh, I'm Brazilian. I might not say words. You tell me. And they were very susceptible to that. And we mm -hmm. were just learning together. And they would help me with words of fruits and vegetables. Mm -hmm. And, like, what does that mean? Mm -hmm. So it was, it was very open. Mm -hmm. It was a good conversation most days. Yeah, yeah. Well, so now I already asked you, Maya, whether you intend to go back to India, but is, is Gambia a place you intend to spend more time? Uh, Ecuador, or do you, do you feel that you want to try a different spot the next time and, and see another part of the world? And sure. Yeah, I think I've, I made a lot of good friends and a lot of good connections mm -hmm. in Gambia, mm -hmm. so I'd definitely like to go back and see them and, and uh, also got a lot of ideas about future kind of research and, and practice mm -hmm. projects to mm -hmm. get involved in, so I would absolutely like yeah. to go back. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I liked Ecuador. I had a wonderful host family. <laughs> um, so I, I could see myself going there. But also with the research pattern that I'm seeing with food access here and where my migrant population, I'm interested in transnational relation with food. So here we have this idea that because a migrant might come from Mexico, Ecuador, Puerto Rico, whatever, um, that they had better food habits down there because, mm -hmm. oh, they probably ate more fruits, they probably ate more vegetables. America, we're so fat, fast food. But because of globalization, we're seeing a shift. Yeah, yeah. So we can't just assume that people are coming here with a knowledge of fruits mm -hmm. and vegetables or their knowledge of a healthier diet mm -hmm. and what does that mean when you do come. Mm -hmm. So I would like to go back to these different countries and see like, what is our, what's their um, 
culture and their diet that they're used to and when mm -hmm. they come here what's the difference and how do we approach it in a culturally sensitive way mm -hmm. well Chris here we know that there are there are uh, some structural problems for poorer populations that live in parts of major US cities where there really aren't um, big grocery stores or affordable grocery stores where you have a lot of fresh foods and so on we've all read about this, heard about this, and I'm sure you have studied it in public health. So I suspect the same kinds of things happen to people who are living in mega cities in different parts of the world. And, you know, maybe their grandparents lived in a place where they had access to, to fruit just, you know, down the road. But um, I can imagine that that kind of thing is, is you know, changing everywhere. Uh, does Gambia have huge cities? Um, not really. Mm. Yes, they do. <laughs> Um, and it's a very densely populated country yeah. as well. It's a very small country. Um, and, but I wouldn't say any mega cities yeah. like you yeah. see in, yeah, in yeah. India or in Ecuador. Mm. So when you were in India, were you spending any time in uh, major cities? Yes, we yeah. spent some time in uh, Coimbatore, uh, Madras, and Delhi. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. yes, we saw a range of different living areas and working mm -hmm. populations mm -hmm. in urban areas and rural areas. Yeah. So I know that your, your recent project and a continuing project involves mm -hmm. the, the laborers on the tea plantations, but mm -hmm. I would suspect that when public health is your, is your um, profession, mm -hmm. you see a whole lot of things. Like, oh, yeah. I want to look into that the next time I come back, mm -hmm. or this is what I want to spend some time working on. Did that happen to you? Yes, definitely. Mm -hmm. And I worked in India previously, and what oh. made me so interested in India um, was construction safety. I mm. would see that. It was a very visible issue. Hmm. Um, whereas in the U.S., we probably don't see day-to-day -day construction being yeah. a, a dangerous profession, although it is. Mm -hmm. um, in India, you would see people wearing fall protection using um, coconut fiber ropes or not wearing a hard hat, oh, yeah. um, bamboo scaffolding. So something that's very visible. Mm -hmm. um, so, so yes, that was very mm -hmm. interesting. Mm -hmm. and I, I could see that being another... Um, yeah. area to look into. Yeah, right. <coughs> Anything you'd like to say about the, the work you're doing or the value of public health uh, education before we wrap up this segment? I don't what? think you can say enough about public health yeah. <laughs> education. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I think the university is doing a really great job funding us. We've all been really lucky that there's somebody out there continuing to put money in believing mm -hmm. that it's a good thing to invest on mm -hmm. and to keep expanding mm -hmm. IO's reach and mm -hmm. to increase in our knowledge and global work, but mm -hmm. we're just lucky to be here. Yeah. Well, and as we heard in a prior segment, too, uh, you know, everything in the globe is connected. You could be working in a town 100 miles away from where you live here in Iowa, or you could be working in India, Gambia, Ecuador, wherever. We are really grateful that you would come here and spend the evening talking to us about your work. So uh, we've been talking to Natalia Santos, to Jake Kundert, and to Maya Ramaswamy. Thank you very much, and good luck with everything you do. And I want to say thank you to all of you for joining us for today's program on uh, global public health, and uh, also a very special evening because we had the chance to talk to our 2015 International Impact Award winner, Rebecca Arnold. Um, all of these programs will be available on UITV, YouTube or iTunes uh, and at the International Programs website, which is international.uiwa.edu. To learn more about Film Scene, you can check them out at icfilmscene.org. I invite you to join us on December 8th for our next program. It'll be a fun one, I think, all about Cuba. So it's Cuba, yesterday, today, and tomorrow. We have 
really incredible people coming to be on that show as well. So come if you can, 5 o'clock December 8th in this room. Uh, thank you for being here, and good night. <laughs>